this is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. Thank you, Matt. So once again this week, we'll be leading off with the deteriorating situation in Myanmar, which is becoming increasingly tough to cover. In recent days, security forces have been using slingshots against reporters. A journalist from RFA was hit in the head in the northern city of Machina on February the 19th, but escaped injury thanks to a helmet. In Mandalay on February the 20th, when we're recording this, security forces were using live ammunition and reportedly targeting even ambulance workers. It's a worrying sign of how events on the ground are growing more serious and dangerous by the day. I'll be looking in particular at how an RFA journalist covered a military news conference, its first since the coup three weeks ago, and tried to hold the military to account. Now, Paul, you'll be looking at more slow-burning forms of repression in Tibet, I understand. Yes, and speaking of hard-to-cover news stories, Tibet has been increasingly hard to cover since the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And we will talk to our Tibetan service director, who has a lot of experience trying to extract information from his former homeland. Okay, that would be fascinating to listen to. Now we turn to Myanmar. As mass protests continued across the country against the coup, the military took its first stab at engaging directly with the press. Now, many of the country's news media boycotted the February 15th news conference as their own act of protest against the military takeover. But Radio Free Asia, which commits itself to covering all sides of a story, decided to attend. The journalist with that heavy responsibility was our senior editor in Naypyidaw, A.A. Mon. She's won praise for the courage she showed in confronting the military council spokesman. She posed a series of tough questions on the detention of civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi, the excessive force used by police on protesters, and restrictions on free expression imposed by the junta. I'm joined by A.A. Mon, who is a journalist with long experience covering Myanmar from near and afar. She previously worked for the Democratic Voice of Burma. For RFA, she's hosted a weekly talk show, Politics Today, or at least did that before the coup made it a hazardous proposition. Welcome, A.A. Mon. Hi. How are you doing? I'm okay. <laughs> That's good. So just tell me a little bit about the Military Council's first news conference that was, I think, presided over by Brigadier General Zor Min Tun. He used to be the army spokesman, but he's now called the Deputy Minister of Information. Were you nervous attending that press conference? No, I was not nervous because of my experience. I was not nervous about uh, the news conference, but because of the country's situation, I felt a little insecure for my safety because I know how they are brutal and cruel. So I feel a little concerned for my safety. But uh, when I focus on my questions to him, I forgot everything and I'm just trying to ask him a lot of questions. Well, you obviously had a lot of questions in your head. It seemed like you were able to ask more questions than anyone else. Were you surprised how much you were able to ask the spokesman? I was not surprised because uh, before going there, I've already decided I will ask so many questions as much as I can. I've already prepared and decided. Can I ask you, I mean, were there many other journalists at the press conference? No. It is uh, very different uh, from other previous army press conference because so many media and journalists boycott. But uh, I feel it's very different 
because IFA is using uh, international standard uh, journalism. So we knew that uh, we have to go and ask the question people wanted to know. Only IFA and acute media inside attended uh, the press conference. Some medias are very favored to military regime and they ask only pro-army question. So it is very different from IFA. Can you explain to, to me and our listeners why you think other media decided to boycott the press conference? They feel that uh, they have to stand for the Burmese people and uh, it is the right thing to boycott a uh, military regime. Uh, they don't want to recognize military regime. For us, we focus on international standard journalism and we have a lot of questions after coup. We have to ask. It's kind of like trying to hold the military to account for what they've done. I mean, were you satisfied with the responses that you got from the military spokesman to your questions? No, I was not satisfied with their answers because I didn't expect I would get right answers from them because I knew that they are liars, always hiding the truth about the people and about the civilian government people elected. They always blame me on the people who are doing strikes, protested on the street against them. They always blame Dawson Suji and NLD. It is only Dawson Suji and NLD government fault. They, they were greedy. They want to uh, power by doing uh, fraud in the election, 2020 election. That is their reason. So I just want to show the whole country and the whole world they are liars. Yeah, indeed you did. I mean, actually, Looking back at the transcript of the press conference, they did admit a couple of interesting things. For example, I saw that the military spokesman defended the right of police to use slingshots against protesters, yes. which I found quite surprising. Mm. Yeah, I was a little surprised, but uh, I think uh, he, he was not ready to answer uh, back about that to me. So his answer was not clear. He just defending and defending and defending about the police and uh, about uh, the regime. Uh, I asked uh, him, it is legal? Because I never seen it before. And he kept on saying that they would act according to the law. Actually, they seem to violate the law. But anyway, you did a great job. And I think your performance at the press conference has won a lot of praise. What sort of feedback have you received personally? And, and were you surprised by the strength of the response? I'm really surprised because I didn't expect uh, I would get so many praise uh, from uh, Burmese people. I didn't realize that in this kind of moment, people rely on media and journalists that much. But because of the country situation, they were really interested in army press conference because that is the first conference after military coup. I just simply did what I have to do as a journalist. But uh, uh, at this night, I got uh, 30 phone calls from uh, old friends and some audience I even don't know, didn't know before. They, they called me again and again until um, midnight. And I got uh, so many messages. They called me, you are a hero. Uh, you are very brave and you are standing for us. So we need you. We need that kind of a brave journalist. And they also praise uh, IFA because I introduced, uh, I am a Mon senior editor from IFA. So now IFA is more popular and popular inside the country. Everybody listening, IFA radio and 
uh, visit the IFA Facebook and they are reading and watching IFA video clips and news stories. That's totally correct. And we could see that on the RFA yeah. Burmese Facebook page. And I could see there must have been about 70,000 positive comments saying things like respect RFA, respect sister, and, uh, you know, congratulations, AA Mon, and all this sort of thing. Yeah, before press conference on my Facebook, I had only uh, 4,000 followers. After that day, I've got uh, 8,000 followers. So that feedback was all incredibly positive, but you've obviously drawn yeah. a lot of attention to yourself now. Are you concerned for your safety? To be honest, I was a little concerned about my safety on that night uh, because uh, I know every midnight, police and soldiers come to people's house and knock the door and arrested so many people. We, we can't even count. So at that night, I, I couldn't sleep until 3 a.m. next morning. But uh, I'm trying to become down myself. And if something happens, I have to face the problem calmly. But uh, next day, I am normal again because uh, I just focus on what I have to do every day, covering news and editing video clips. But I am not free and nobody arrests me yet, but I don't know what happened later. I think I think we can all learn a lot from your professionalism as a journalist in, in handling this situation. What's it been like in Napidor since the coup? I mean, you've been covering protests and other things. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's been like? We Napidor IFA team, we have only three staff plus uh, one IT. We've been covering a lot of news and news reports since 1st February. On that date, one journalist went out uh, to the Sibin guest house. There were over 400 members of parliament rounded by many soldiers on that day. My journalist filmed and secretly into the guest house and interviewed some members of parliament. And another journalist and I drove uh, around the Nibiru and eyewitness what happened around the Nibiru. There are so many soldiers and police in this whole city. After two or three days later, there were civil disobedient movement. So many people protesting against the military regime. So we were we are busy every day and reporting about the event. On the 9th of February, there was a big uh, protest. Nearly uh, 100,000 people involved in that big mass protest and the military regime cracked down. Two young people, one is uh, a boy and one is a girl, 20 years old girl. One was shot in the chest and a girl was uh, shot in her head. Today, uh, she was passed away. Now, uh, so many uh, protests uh, here and there around the city, even though uh, there were a crackdown every day, but uh, people are protesting more and more. So now the whole country is in big chaos. Yeah, so sad to see uh, my country. The 10 years uh, democratic reform is totally crashed down and totally destroyed now. It's so sad to see. Indeed, it is. A.A. Mon, we wish you very well, and we hope that you stay safe in your continuing coverage of what's happening in Napidor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Matt. Eye on Asia will now turn from the subtropical temperatures of the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea to the Himalayan highlands of Tibet. Shan State in northern Myanmar shares a border with the Tibetan regions of China, and the great rivers of Myanmar originate on the Tibetan Plateau. RFA Tibetan Service Director Kaldan Lodo 
has been with RFA almost from the beginning, 25 years ago. He was born in Tibet and raised in India, which is home to some 150,000 Tibetans, some well into the third generation of exile. But long before Calden was a news gatherer for RFA, he was a young Buddhist monk and a student of the Dalai Lama for 11 years, from the age of 10 at a monastery in Dharamsala, India, the seat of the exiled Tibetan government since 1959. Calden retains a close relationship with Tibet's spiritual leader to this day. Our focus is on the death of one political prisoner in Tibet that we reported on recently and what it says about how difficult it is to get information out of that Chinese-controlled region. We will also explore the connection between long-standing oppression in Tibet and the recently exposed horrific situation in Xinjiang. Thank you again for making time for us, Calden. Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm taking part in this uh, very interesting podcast topic. RFA's Tibetan service and English service recently reported about Kunchuk Jimpa, a 51-year-old former tour guide and self-educated cultural enthusiast who died of mistreatment in prison. And we do a lot of stories of monks and others who get stuck in prison for something they've done and get mistreated and either die in prison or just as often are sent home to die. What made uh, Kunchuk Jimpa more relevant to RFA was the fact that he was sent away for sharing information about his region of Tibet with the foreign press. So Calden, tell us a little bit about how he was both typical in the mistreatment, but also his unique role as a conduit to the outside world. As you said, uh, in the last one year, at least RFA has reported seven such people who died uh, as a result of maltreatment with the prisoner or uh, former prisoner. Many of them uh, either took part in protest, simple protest, uh, or they have uh, distributed leaflets. So different reasons and uh, prison terms ranging from uh, seven years to 20 years. Uh, for example, Kunchuk Jimba was sentenced to 21 years. The uniqueness of Kunchuk Jimba is quite interesting. In the early 80s and 90s, it's when tourists were able to visit Tibet and they could get a lot of news out of Tibet. Since RFS started uh, in 1996, we used to get calls from Tibet, letters from Tibet. That sort of dried up since 2008 uh, after the Olympic Games or in the run-up to Olympic Games. Kunchuk Jimbo is unique that he used to provide a lot of information, concrete information. For example, there's a very famous time in Diru where uh, Diru is where he was from in eastern Tibet. Uh, the Chinese government forced to all the Tibetans uh, to fly uh, Chinese uh, national flags, and Tibetans uprose against it. And he was the one who actually uh, distributed uh, news or disseminated news uh, outside of Tibet. We often used to get calls from Diru, not just one, but many times, uh, including in my own uh, live talk shows. Uh, in 2013, I remember one guy, uh, I'm sure it's a, a pseudonym uh, called Tashi, told us 1,500 Tibetans staged protests against uh, mining activities in Diru area. And uh, the, out of these 1,500 people, they choose six uh, Tibetans to go to Diru township to appeal to stop the mining at that uh, mountain, that mountain 
is considered sacred mountain by the Tibetans. Such as, so he's very unique, and the information that people use to receive from him are very concrete. You know, he has amazing knowledge of exiled Tibetan because when he was young, he studied and went to school in India. Uh, he uh, went to study at Saranath, at the higher Tibetan education center there. He went back, become a guide. And then, according to a source in Tibet just uh, a few days ago, told us that he engages with people, encourages people not to lose culture, keep the identity uh, tag, use Tibetan language, etc. So in that sense, I think he's uh, unique. There are many Tibetans who uh, do that, but I think he's unique because he's very brave. He's, you know, his last talk with somebody apparently uh, said in, in, during a WeChat conversation, he said, I could, I'm by a river, I could see people behind. It could be that I would be arrested. And he said, I don't, if you didn't hear from me, that means I got arrested. And he said, I don't regret even if I die at their hands. Oh my gosh. And he did die at their hands. Exactly. Uh, I, I have to, uh, he, he illustrates just how difficult it is to keep getting information out of Tibet and China works ruthlessly and purposefully to close those windows to Tibet. Uh, I always wonder how many, as a, you know, working for RFA, how many Tibetans die in prison and we, nobody learns anything about them. There must be, you know, for example, uh, we didn't even know that he was sentenced in 2013. There was a case that we reported, uh, Paul and we worked together on this. Uh, somebody died five years ago. We didn't even know about it. You know, so it, it is very, very hard, especially what happened since 2008. It's very, very difficult to get out of the news. You know, the, when there was a lot of self-immolation taking place, the news was coming out at the yes. same time. China was beeping up the restrictions. Even they just talk about something and they found out that they, they have exile contacts. People will be persecuted for that. So nowadays it's very, very difficult. So I don't really have an exact number as to how many people might have died at their hands. Sure. Well, you've been leading news gathering from Tibet at RFA for close to two decades or more than two decades, I believe. You said 2008, which is, of course, the Olympic year, and there were worldwide protests with many of them focused on Tibet. My sense and everyone in other parts of China that Xi Jinping brought things to even a harsher level. Is that correct? You know, what is happening right now in Uyghur Xinjiang Autonomous Region, uh, as China calls it, they have implemented or the, they have tried everything in Tibet. And they took it into Xinjiang. S since Xi Jinping came, what happened was every part of the society became restricted, you know, more, more stricter. The use of Tibetan language is diminishing in Tibet. Uh, more Chinese are coming into Tibet. Tibetans are encouraged for intermarriages. So the, the environmental uh, destruction is getting bigger. You know, mining hasn't stopped. At the same time, China is leading claiming to be leading the world in environmental protection, but they are destroying the nation in Tibet. So, yeah, many people in the beginning, after Hu Jintao, people thought Xi Jinping will adopt a more practical policy in Tibet, but that had not happened. You know, as you can see, less and less 
international fact-finding missions, including the the foreign uh, development missions to go to Tibet, has become more difficult. The independent journalists are hardly getting permission to go to Tibet. Uh, the tourism, the non-Chinese tourists go to Tibet has been severely restricted. You know, so uh, overall things gotten worse uh, instead of getting better. Sure. You mentioned Xinjiang, and of course, we spent a lot of time covering the horrors of Xinjiang. I've been you know, following China for 30 years or so, and it was for the longest time, Tibet was sort of the front burner example for the world of of Chinese you know, policy towards ethnic regions that was bad. And uh, Tibet, of course, had His Holiness the Dalai Lama as a global champion, whereas it, in, in Xinjiang, people didn't know as much. Chen Chuan Guo was party secretary in Tibet before he came to, to Xinjiang, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. what, what is he responsible for? We know he, he's already been sanctioned by the U.S. and Britain, I believe, and several others for his role in the camps of Xinjiang. What is he most noted or hated for in Tibet? When he was at the helm in Tibet, people called Tibet, Tibetans themselves, the great prison. For example, he was the one who created, who introduced the facial recognition, put hundreds and thousands of cameras in Lhasa and other areas. He never tolerated any forms of protest he was the one who actually engineered the mobile police stations. Uh-huh. Every few hundred yards, there would be police stations. The severe restrictions were uh, imposed between the Tibetans traveling within Tibet. Plaza is the capital of Tibet for two reasons. You know, it used to be political capital as well as the spiritual capital. Chen Go put a lot of restrictions for the Tibetans outside of the Tibet autonomous regions to come into Tibet as, as a pilgrimage. He put severe restrictions on the monasteries around Hasa. And then also he launched a campaign to for the Tibetans, not only the monks and nuns, the party members, as well as the ordinary Tibetans to denounce the Dalai Lama. So uh, I could use the word Tibetans hated him. Sure, I can understand that. I guess you also were not surprised at uh, the turn of events in Xinjiang, having experienced it in your region. Tibetans could understand probably the best what's going on in uh, Xinjiang, because uh, many of this has been experimented in Tibet. And now being reintroduced, some of the effective measures back into Tibet, for example, forced labor situations. So you know, Tibetans totally understand and have greater sympathy for what's happening in Xinjiang. I'm going to turn to U.S. policy towards Tibet and ask, uh, first off, what sort of developments came out of the Trump administration and Congress during this last four years that were most noteworthy? I know sure. that the uh, the Reciprocity Act and there were things like that. Well, Tibetans have been very lucky in terms of getting bipartisan support, irrespective of what party is actually running the government. So during the Trump administration, although people were unsure of the beginning, but uh, Congress uh, had huge support in Tibet, they were able to uh, pass reciprocal act with with a very large majority support. Uh, which was signed by the former president, uh, Trump, in law. And towards the end of his uh, presidency, uh, he signed the uh, Tibet Policy Act, in which 
the bill has almost recognized uh, the CTA, Central Tibetan Administration, as a legitimate uh, representative of Tibetans everywhere. And also the future reincarnation, it has stated very clearly that the rights of recognizing the Dalai Lama solely relies on the Tibetans and Tibetan Buddhists, including His Holiness himself. So these are very, very important. You know, these moral supports means a lot to the Tibetan people to keep their moral high. Also, the aid, financial aid given to the Central Tibetan Administration uh, from the USA government have been appropriated before it used to go through other organizations, uh, other the government agencies. Now, uh, these funds are directly given to CTA, which is a huge recognition. We're in the Biden era, and they're, they're deep with people who understand the Tibetan issue. So what are you, do you expect continuity, or what are you looking for? Not you personally, but what are Tibetans looking for in the, in the Biden era? Tibetans have huge hope in Biden because two things. One, Biden is not new to uh, lending support for Tibet. You know, he's been in U.S. Senate for a long, long time, and every major legislative bills, uh, Biden has always uh, lended his support. And also, he was a former vice president, and Obama has met his holiness, the Dalai Lama, quite a few times, and they were very close. So Biden knows about the the functioning of the U.S. support for Tibet and Obama's, uh, particularly the support for middle way approach, uh, which the which is the initiative uh, taken by uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, as well as the Central Tibetan Administration, as the method to resolve differences between the Chinese government and the His Holiness. And also here, soon after Biden came into power, uh, the Secretary of State very clearly stated that. Uh, the U.S. government would support Tibet in few forms. One is that they, with other alliance countries, will push China to enter into unconditional talks with His Holiness as well as the representative of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And they recently, during the Tibetan New Year, uh, Secretary uh, Blinken openly said that USA will always be there to support and to preserve the Tibetan unique uh, cultural, heritage, religious, etc. And also they have very clearly said that the future reincarnation of all high Tibetan lamas, including that of the Dalai Lama, will be an issue of solely Tibetans, only of the Tibetans, and USA support that. So I think it will continue. Now it's very new administration, many uh, things yet to be seen. I think what is more important is that now we have to see how Biden administration actually executes the Tibet Policy Act, which is just passed uh, in January. Well, that's a somewhat hopeful note in a complicated time. So I want to thank Calden Loda again for taking time to explain these nuanced uh, issues for us on Tibet. Thank you, Calden. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks to Paul and Colden for that fascinating review of what's happening in Tibet. However, the U.S. response to the situation there, it's disturbing to hear Colden's perspective on how Tibet has served as a testing ground for those repressive Chinese policies that have been rolled out in Xinjiang. Indeed. And if you look closely at RFA's coverage, China under Xi Jinping is extending under the 
mantra of ethnic unity, those kind of policies to other groups that have generally been quiescent in China, like the Koreans, and also in Inner Mongolia, uh, squeezing the language out of their textbooks and pushing the heavy Sinocentric view of history and culture on them. Okay, that's um, a disturbing trend that I expect RFA will be covering and that we may be covering in a podcast at a future date. Please join us again next week for another sampling in this podcast of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts can be heard on platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've got any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.